0: Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer, and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I am good. Welcome to April. Did you get fooled on April Fool's Day?
0: No, but I nearly did.
1: <laughs> you nearly did. <laughs> what about oh, you? No, getting past Rena. No, I am safe so far. So safe. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh let's jump straight into it. What has been your challenge this week, Rena?
0: My challenge this week has been Amanda dealing with strata committees and ha- the informal means that some of them are like to have, so in uh-huh. a sense, they're not putting out agendas. I just send like an informal meeting agenda to me, and then after that meeting they then start to say, well, Rena, can you issue this work order or can you accept this quote from this engineer or can you do this and can you do that and i'm thinking well it's it's a bit hard because it's not really a valid meeting um And to me, in a sense, there's no transparency for the other owners in the building. So, firstly, as we've discussed, I think, in previous episodes, you need to include the agenda on the notice board. So, that hasn't happened because it's an informal meeting. I think they actually advertise it to the other owners if they want to come, as Hmm. far as I know, by, I think, by email. But then, Hmm. then again, not all owners have email, so I'm not really sure exactly like how much people know about the meeting but as far as I know from their attendees it's never anyone except the committee anyway so it's not as if like people are coming yeah and so I was wondering Amanda how like what would be your recommendations in terms of dealing with this strata committee
1: yeah well we talked about it uh back in episode 149 of the podcast why we thought strata committees should be meeting regularly mm-hmm. and And the interesting thing is, and we covered this off in the webinar last week as well, there is no express requirement in our Act for strata committees to meet, unlike the requirement to have an annual general meeting at least once in each financial year. We don't have that same requirement for strata committees. However, strata committees, I say, can only make legal decisions when they are in committee meeting unless it's something urgent or you know there's a danger or a safety issue those kinds of things are generally delegated to your strata manager anyway to do that day-to-day, yeah. day-to-day stuff but there's no reason why you shouldn't be convening regular committee meetings And making formal decisions that are, as you say, Rena, notified to owners and minuted. So, if we think about a committee in the situation that you've outlined, Rena, that's not doing this, and how do we encourage them to do this? What I've seen work well, perhaps unfortunately, buildings learning the hard way, it's when something goes wrong. It's when an owner commences litigation points out to the tribunal that this committee this building has not been following the legal requirements points out that there's no transparency that they don't know what's going on that their issues are not getting dealt with or there's some allegation that the committee is not being above board even if they might be they're doing they think mm. they're doing everything right and everything's in good faith it's just it's not a good look it doesn't look good mm. and when that litigation happens and is resolved either way that committee then realizes the importance of having these regular formal meetings of complying with the legislation and they start to do it. So is there a way to send that message to this committee that, hey guys, this is putting you at risk Yep. this is exposing you to personal liability because there may be some allegation down the track from a lot owner that you are acting negligently, that you are being self-serving, that you are not acting in good faith. And we know you're not doing all those things, but unless there is a written record, a paper mm-hmm. trail of agendas and minutes and proper decisions, it's very hard to answer that allegation
0: and you don't want to put yourselves in that position. Yeah, I totally agree, Amanda. Um, what I've suggested, I think also just as a partly a way to sort of mitigate this risk is to um, have a like a committee meeting in writing where we can sort of formalize the adoption of certain quotations and fee proposals just as a minimum so at least people can see what money is being spent um, and for what purpose. But I'd totally agree, Amanda, that people don't realize that everything is fine and dandy when, you know, everyone's happy with what's going on. But the minute something goes wrong where an owner is unhappy with an outcome. Um, it could even be, for example, like a pet approval. I mean, in the day, even though there's, there's a bylaw that says that for some of the schemes that they can have option A and the arts corporation can't un- withhold consent. It's all about the person being aware that an application has been submitted if it's their neighbour, either on the, beside them or above them. Um, I think it's important that, you know, that transparency and, and the risk that's also placed on those committee members, that the personal liability that you mentioned, I mean, if they're being told a matter that, that they shouldn't be doing something a certain way and then they obviously act mm. contrary to that advice, I'm not sure if their office bearer's you know, liability policy will, will actually kick in if it ever mm. came to such a, a serious consequence where you had to call on that insurance. So Yes,
1: reminding them of that risk I think will go a long way towards changing behaviour. That's my yeah. suggestion.
0: But I think also what I find difficult, Amanda, is if like other strata managers have let them do this in the past. This is where I find that people get into these habits and then you're trying to explain, no, this is not right. And so it's like sort of changing people's behaviors, which obviously is always, you know, difficult and time consuming. But hopefully we can get there eventually with this scheme. So Yep, for sure.
1: Well, thanks for the advice, Amanda. Yeah. No, no problem. See how you go. My challenge for this week I am bringing an NCAT case to the table today, Rina, for a challenge. And this case is about tenants breaching bylaws. It is a case that was reported back in November. 2018, so the end of last year, I will put a link to the case in the show notes. It's called Filetti and Eels, E-A-L-E-S, a tribunal case, as I said, New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal. And in this case, the tribunal found, in short, that a landlord is not responsible for their tenant's breach of the bylaws. Now this is really interesting, and I list it as a challenge because I think buildings really need to be aware of this now. And uh, I do have a suggestion for how you might want to deal with it. Um, what happened in this case was that the tenants were breaching the noise bylaw, so interfering with peaceful enjoyment, and the owners corporation pursued both the tenant and the landlord, the owner of the lot, saying that there was a breach of their noise bylaw. Now that's something that. You've probably heard me suggest from time to time when it comes to enforcing bylaws that it's important to involve the owner, the owner being the one with the financial, if you like, interest in the lot and the one who's most likely to take notice of letters from the owner's corporation and deal with them and bring their tenant into line. But in this case, the tribunal held that there was no evidence of the landlord themselves creating the disturbance and disturbing the peace. So there was no basis for the tribunal to find that the landlord had breached the noise by law. So the bylaw that was in place was the standard noise bylaw. An owner-occupier or of a lot must not create any noise likely to interfere with the peaceful enjoyment. Now, the owner, of course, said, well, I didn't create any noise likely to interfere with the peaceful enjoyment. And the lesson that I think is here for buildings and for committees is that if you do want to have the option of pursuing an owner together with a tenant for a breach of a bylaw then you need to make sure that your bylaws expressly make owners responsible for the actions of their tenant because otherwise the authority of this case is likely to be used to get the
0: owner uh, off the hook if you like. What do you think Rena? So Amanda like who is taking the action against was it Sorry, I don't understand the case because yep. it's so two people. So was it, the owners' corporation was not involved in this case at all? It was the owner and occupier
1: of another unit sought orders against the owner and occupier of the... Oh, okay, the, yeah, well that makes unit. sense. Because, yep. I mean,
0: I was going to say that really, I mean, we have never, ever recommended that an, an owners' corporation take action against the owner when there's a bylaw breach for the very reason is that the owner is not the one that's committing the breach, it's the tenant. Mm-hmm. But what we do ask the agent to do, is, and this has worked pretty much on every occasion that I've had to um, use it, Amanda, is we write to the agent and say, here are three, you know, breaches, you know, letters, notices, reminders. You know, clearly your tenant is actually breaching the lease because the lease contains all the bylaws, which, which have to be now attached. And that's why a lot of agents now, when they're taking on a new tenant, they go, can you send us all the bylaws? Because that, mm-hmm. they have to now attach them to the lease and they and they form part of the residential tenancy lease. So therefore, when they're breaching any of the terms of the lease, which includes the bylaws, then that is a breach of their lease. So sometimes we have asked the landlord through their agent or directly to assist us in, in terminating the lease Based on these breaches, so it concurrently, yeah, you know, you go down the the NCAT route where the owners corporation takes action against the tenant, and then side by side, we then write to the owner and through their agent or directly and, and seek their help because, again, it does make sense that you can't, I mean, the landlord may not even live in in the country, for example. I mean, they could live overseas, but what they should do is obviously assist, you know, the owns corporation or, or a lot owner or another party within the scheme to help use whatever tools are at their disposal, which is the residential tenancy lease, to try and help deal with, mm-hmm. with their tenant who they really have the contractual relationship with.
1: Indeed, and that might be what your
0: bylaw says. Yeah.
1: I would recommend yeah. that it actually sets out that uh, the bylaws have to be attached to the lease. Well, that's in our act, isn't it? So, yeah. and that if a tenant is breaching the bylaws, then it's for, then the owner should be looking to the terms of that lease and doing all things necessary to assist the owner's corporation with the enforcement of that bylaw and take active steps to enforce the terms of their lease,
0: noting that the bylaws are annexed to informing part of the lease. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I know in um, company title schemes, some of them remember that. Memorandum articles of association demand do actually put pressure on the on the shareholder to take action and that that they could be also held liable, including ah. like their shares being, you know, forfeited, etc. So I think interesting. Yeah. So I think there are, you know, in company tile schemes, especially the older ones where in where I live, for example, I mean, we have that already, where in a sense, apart from just the tenant being responsible, we actually can make the owner get involved. It's a much bigger stick there for the owner to to not sort of dig their head in the sand and and take action to assist the company Mm. remedy any breaches of the bylaws or company rules in this case so Mm. yep excellent
1: very interesting topic so i will put a link to that case in the show notes you can go and
0: check that one out Moving to your win for this week, Rena. This is a win in relation to an NCAT application that we had in hearing where um, the Arts Corporation was given the authority to remove items that were stored in a car space, which is contrary to the bylaw. Mm-hmm. But an extension of that, order was that I, we sought that the owners corporation um be allowed to um store the items in an off-site storage facility and that we would be able to actually um pass those costs on to their levy account mm-hmm. and we had an enforcement sort of costs by law which i think there's been some people that have you know i've sort of been listening to the various owners speaking on forums where they're challenging the whole notion of having a bylaw where enforcement costs can be can be added to a lot. But in this case, um, that was presented as part of our uh, request and the uh, member at the time said, yep, that's fine. I will allow the cost to be um, put on as per the bylaw and um, and that can be recovered, you know, like a levy, an outstanding levy. So, mm. well, it was really good that the um, member sort of took that view, but I'm not sure in a sense at the moment they haven't yet paid that so we don't know how yeah. it's going to go when we try and enforce it but anyway I thought it was a great outcome for the scheme because you know despite so many reminders and requests like you said Amanda and writing to people sometimes people just don't I mean they didn't even turn up to the tribunal even so I was a bit con- sort of yeah about that. I think he didn't even make any attempt to come to the hearing so right I don't know if they're just MIA or what <laughs> Yeah, it's good to know that the
1: tribunal has essentially upheld uh, Mm. a bylaw that permits an owners' corporation to charge enforcement costs and to put them onto the lot account because there are many of those bylaws. And as far as I'm aware, any lawyers out there will send me an email, no doubt, if I'm wrong. I don't think we have a reported case that makes clear that these bylaws have been upheld. So this is the frustrating thing that's happening with our tribunal at the moment is that we're not getting a lot of these decisions reported. So we're not reading, we don't know about them. I'm assuming, Rina, this case was not reported. We can't read it somewhere.
0: Um, I don't think so, no. I mean, I can, I can look it up and see if I can find it like publicly, but the other thing he said, cause the enforcement costs in this file do allow us to recover costs for the mediation and NCAD, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, no, mediation says that everyone has to pay their own costs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that might've been going a little bit too far cause you're trying to then recover your legal costs, which is always a separate. Yeah. yeah. But some of the do want you to, um, to go that far they even want you to oh
1: don't worry I've drafted bylaws that say that yeah. um but I, I don't think when it comes down to it
0: yeah you could be able yeah. to enforce those so yeah but at least like in, in a sense you know we had a chat about the different aspects of the enforcement and, and he agreed that you know the, the hiring facility charges you know could be um passed on and that was part of the orders mm Excellent. Yeah, and then you'll
1: just enforce that if the lot account, the levy, and the expenses on the lot account are not paid when they're due, then yeah. you'll enforce that through the local court and see whether see if there's any defense. We'll
0: see how it goes. I'll, I'll keep you posted, Amanda, yeah, to see what sure. happens when they don't pay. I
1: haven't paid it yet. So, oh,
0: and that okay. was at the end Very of interesting. January, I think.
1: Okay. The win that I would like to share this week, this comes from a strata manager who emailed me and it started out as a challenge, but I am reframing this Rena as a win. The challenge was around strata managers, being able to effectively manage client expectations. And this strata manager had said to me, Amanda, this is one thing that I struggle with, that I see my colleagues struggle with. How do we set the expectations of our clients? How do we manage them when sometimes those expectations are unreasonable? or We simply can't meet them. Mm. And I am framing this as a win this week because I know that there are strata managers out there who are successfully managing their client expectations. And I know one of those strata managers, and that is you, Rena Van Oust.
0: Oh, I see <laughs> you very
1: often, uh, whether I'm attending meetings or whether we're working together one way or another, communicating with your clients and doing just that, managing their expectations. And I was going to ask you, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, how <laughs> (laughs) Do you do that and what what is this special skill how do you how do you set expectations as a strata manager how do you make sure that clients aren't unreasonable that they know what it is that you are there to provide and therefore avoiding that uh, disappointment I guess when unreasonable expectations are not met
0: I think the first thing I think with any sort of relationship is to sort of set up from the beginning, Amanda, like, you know, what your company's sort of policy is and that should be clearly articulated from the beginning. So, if people know that there's a time frame in which you respond to emails and telephone calls in the first instance, then at least they know, okay, well, you know, that's being met as a minimum. But I think the other thing also that I try and do is when there is something that's urgent for a client, you just really got to drop everything and attend to it. And I find that, you know, in a sense, even a quick text can help or a quick email, even if you can't get to it straight away. And I know sometimes people think that, oh, you know, but I've got so many emails and and that is true. But that's why you need to have good support systems within your office so that, you know, if if you're unable as a manager because you've got other urgent... Matters to attend to or other meetings, and a lot of us are always in meetings both day and night. That there's someone else that's there to assist the manager when they're not around, so they can actually write back to the client or deal with an urgent matter. The other thing I've always sort of tried to instill in people that I've worked with, you know, at the support level, especially, is that when you issue a work order, for example, or a quote request, you know, whether it's from a professional person or a, or a contractor, you know, send the email and then send a copy to, to the strata committee. When you accept the quote, send a copy to the contractor and then send it to the strata committee. And then that'll reduce so much email traffic because people actually then know that you've already done what they've asked you to do. They don't have to say, Arena, have you done this or have you done that? Mm. It's, they know it's been done. So that's one way I think of trying to meet client expectations. It's half the time the clients don't really know what you're doing for them in the background. And it's funny, I think Amanda, you and I can share this story about a mutual um, client of ours and colleague who still is a lot owner and dealt with me when I was his strata manager but now he's become a strata manager and now he understands on the, on the other side the amount of work that is done behind the scenes and so people really sometimes don't understand what you're doing and so part of that is to sort of communicate that and then people can understand well hang on yeah like one thing I do find is that everyone thinks that their issue is the most important or you know, and that's sometimes I think mm. to do with personality types. And, and I think, you know, what I've done also with certain people that are that are unreasonable, man, because there are unreasonable people mm. in the world, which is part of life. But you, you said down in the beginning, like I had someone today send an email He rang yesterday, you know, and I just, even remember the time. It was 1245 because we had the, the email come through from our receptionist, 1245. And I wasn't in the office and my colleague um, wasn't able to return the call till four fifty-nine PM when she Left a message on that person's voicemail. The next day, you know, today I get this, you know, large email and this and that, and you know, like, and the person describing themselves as being unreasonable anyway and hmm. wanting immediate attention, and that, which is, you know, as, as part of the personality of who I'm referring to. But I was right back. You called this time just one of this time, I'll ring you back later on this afternoon. And that was it. I thought, not going to, you know, so sometimes as a manager, you've got to just sit down the parameters and demarcate, you know, mm. what is urgent and what is not urgent. Because sometimes there are times you've got to adopt everything and attend to something mm-hmm. and sometimes you know, it can wait. But sometimes mm-hmm. if you always responding quickly all the time I think people start to also um, assume that expectation so I think it's just yeah it's one of those things like juggling so many balls in the air it just becomes but I think using resources more effectively in your office trying to you know ensure that as a manager people do have another person that can step in I know a lot of offices don't have that because of the way that they're structured and and how they how managers are enumerated and how mm. and what fees they're charging but I think certain things do go a long way in trying to assist the manager to try and deal with client expectations and um, yeah I think I think people just like communications I mean I think people don't really like those emails where it says you know like we got you you know those automatic ones I think i find after a while they just yeah, start to yeah. annoy me. It's um, like-
1: I think just to that point about communications and i know with those auto responses what i suppose the companies are trying to do is is educate the client to not expect the reply yeah. in five minutes and you know i have a lot of emails and yeah. i'll get to it or i'm in a meeting or whatever it
0: is i don't mind those ones when you're in a meeting and the ones i'm talking about amanda was like we will respond to you in yeah. three business days How you know like it's like a standard thing that you get with every email you yeah. send it's not like when you're out of the office, it's just every email Mm. you send, you get that first thing back. Yes,
1: it's definitely one way and it's not everybody's way. I know uh, with my clients... I uh, attempt to set the boundaries and set the expectations early. And one of those is that I'm not always available to speak on the phone because I might be in court or I might be in a meeting or I'm recording podcasts or maybe I'm parenting, whatever it is, I'm less likely to be found on the phone than I am on email or on SMS. So what I do on the voicemail on my mobile telephone, and I get lots of calls through to my mobile because I share that number far and wide. My voicemail says, I would prefer it if you don't leave a voice message, you will get a faster response from me if you send me an SMS or an email. And that means that whether I am standing in the middle of the park with my little boy, or I am walking out of a meeting, or I've got a break between tribunal appearances, I can send you a quick SMS in reply to say, I've got that. And this is what you should do next. Or I've got that and I will ring you at five o'clock when I am done. But it's otherwise difficult for me to answer the phone and speak. So I have found that over time, my clients, whether they're new clients or long-term clients, because that's been their first encounter with me, they then start texting me and they start sending me emails and they realize that- Amanda actually responds faster if we text her or email her, and it's wonderful because that's how I like to communicate, and my clients then have a realistic expectation about those communications.
0: Yeah, no, that's a very good suggestion, Amanda. I think sometimes too, um, there are demographics that come into play um, for c- certain people that are, they're a bit older that they don't know how to text or they, mm. you know, like they like to ring because. You know, that's just their preferred method of communication That's yep. how they've always communicated. And um, so I suppose in a sense it's it's just trying to manage different types of people's communication styles and then try and make that fit in with with what you're doing. So, I mean, even if, you know, let's say I get a message and I can't ring them back. I know that they, they don't have a mobile. I'll just ask for them, someone to say, can you just call them back and tell them I'll ring them back? Like, exactly,
1: yeah. And that's where your team comes in to be yeah. able to help you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, I
0: think, and I think people don't mind, as long as people know that, you're not ignoring them, not that you ever were, but yes. at least people say that, you know, yep, Rena's onto that, you know, she's yeah. or someone else in the office will, will can deal with that. So, And yeah.
1: sometimes that's what it is, an email that says, I am not ignoring you, yeah. but I have been in a conference for two days. I have been presenting at an event. I, yeah. I've got your email. I'm not ignoring you. I am going yeah. to look at this. And I do that often, often Yeah, that, I, that yeah. I do just send that one line. I'm working on it. I'm looking at it. You can expect this the next day. And anyone who's listening who has worked with me will be able to. That'll sound familiar to you. Yeah. uh, And it's so helpful. It gets it off your shoulders, that burden of, oh, my gosh, I have to do that or I have to do that Yeah, exactly, Amanda. And that person then knows that's okay. They don't need it done. They just need to know that you haven't forgotten about it and they're not being ignored
0: yeah or that it's in in progress yeah Yeah. exactly so thanks Amanda yeah
1: no I'm so glad that I raised that topic and thank you to that strata manager for reaching out with it always important to share I think what we're doing in our respective professions and be able to share those actionable tips I hope with our listeners whether you're a manager or you're an owner who's juggling your own burdens or a committee member um, helpful for all I think exactly (laughs) all right i think that's it for this week rena thank you so much as always thank you Amanda. see you next time catch you next time
0: bye thank you for listening to your strata property the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property